All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome um, to what will be not a public lecture, but um, two small public conversations and then a discussion. Um, but before we begin, we, of course, wish to introduce uh, the Minister of State for the Department for International Development. Uh, Jonathan Leap will do that. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, John. Uh, I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the Executive Director of the International Growth Center. It's a pleasure to have you all here. We're very honored this evening to have with us uh, Minister Desmond Swain, who's a Minister of State in the Department for International Development. Uh, Mr. Swain uh, became a member of Parliament in 1997, shortly after the election of David Cameron as, as a party leader. He became his parliamentary private secretary. In 2011, became a Privy Councillor, and in July 2014, was appointed to his current post of Minister of State uh, in uh, the Department for International Development. As far as we're concerned, he has all of the exciting portfolios within DFID. He has both quite a broad-ranging uh, geographical portfolio, uh, including Asia and Middle East and Africa, but he also has conflict in governance and security issues, and also uh, what relates most directly to us has economic development issues in his portfolio. IGC is, uh, was uh, founded with support from DFID right from the beginning in 20, 2008, um, and we're now uh, in our second phase of activity with continued support uh, from DFID. For those of you who don't know about us, what's unusual about the IGC is that we bring together world-class researchers from around the world, from a global network of researchers that we've established, with a set of 15 country teams in Africa and Asia. So we really are very much on the ground bringing researchers and policymakers together. All of this really in, in, in the spirit of trying to provide demand-led policy advice for, for developing country governments based on frontier research. Great pleasure to have Minister Swain with us this evening. Comrades, as I came uh, into the lecture theatre, I had one of those deja vu moments, and it all came flooding back to me. I was here about six weeks ago. Uh, delivering a lecture. And I recall that one of the other presenters had been feeling rather poorly. And I recommended that alcohol was a great reviver uh, and the only way to stay well was to drink heavily. And of course, as I got to the lectern, there was a glass of water, but it had already been poured. And I spilt it all over the keyboard, wrecking the presentation that was immediately to follow mine. I will endeavour to be less... Um, uh, expansive in my uh, gesticulations uh, this day and keep the water in the bottle where it was intended. Frankly, I never touched the stuff. Now, <laughs> comrades, can I begin with um, a heresy? I will only say it once. Although growth is vitally important, it is of itself not enough. There are many developing economies that have experienced a significant measure of growth without that actually feeding through into significant increases in employment and in particularly well-played employment and formal employment. And I believe profoundly that international development in the end comes down to one thing. It's all 
about jobs. It's having a job, a livelihood, that enables you to put shelter above your head, food on the table uh, for your family, perhaps even educating them and providing health care for them, and if you have any leisure time, being able to fund the activities in your leisure time. And people will go to extraordinary lengths to seek a livelihood. They will abandon everything they've ever known and migrate as they have for years by the millions in Africa and indeed in China. And we see this tide of humanity now advancing uh, from the east and from sub-Saharan Africa across the Mediterranean. And even the minority who are fleeing conflict rather than seeking employment primarily, just look at their behaviours. Let's take Zatari, the now on the cusp of being the largest refugee camp in the world in Lebanon. Now, actually, in Zatari, the accommodation that the United Nations High Commission uh, for Refugees will provide you with is substantially better than you will find in many cities in the developing world. And add to that safety and security and sanitation and clean water and the fact that the World Food Programme will ensure that you're fed and UNICEF will provide an education for your children. And yet, and yet, by the hundreds of thousands, they abandon that provision and risk everything, putting themselves in the hands of criminals and gangsters, spending every penny that they have to undertake a journey that is all too often fatal. Why? Because the one thing that Zatari can't give them is a job, a livelihood, a future. Comrades, in the end, it's all about jobs. And the world needs 600 million new jobs over the next decade if we are to avoid an army of increasingly disenchanted, frustrated and angry people. So it's all about jobs. How can we create jobs? Can government create jobs? I've never believed that government could create jobs, and I think all the lessons of history are that it cannot. The only mechanism for creating jobs, as I see it, is private sector-led investment, releasing the initiative and enterprise of people to trade for their own benefit. It's that that creates and sustains jobs. Of course, governments can do something. <laughs> governments can do something, but more often they do the wrong thing. Of course, governments should create the conditions in which jobs can thrive and investment can take place uh, by providing a regime in which they thrive. But all too often, rather than raising sufficient revenue from their own resources and providing the infrastructure and the power, the energy, the electricity that private businesses need, rather their taxation is arbitrary and unpredictable and drives away enterprise. Often enough, there's no contract law or indeed rule of law or any law. 
Often enough, there's no security of tenure. Often enough, the bureaucracy is wholly inefficient and stifling because the people who run it got the job because they're somebody's cousin or uncle rather than someone who would have been effective at actually doing that job. Sometimes the enterprises that do take off and become uh, successful are expropriated by the government or the elite or the elites, the government's family or indeed the army starts to take over the running of the economy increasingly. Whatever there is, there is any number of ways that governments stand in the way of the creation of jobs. And therefore, for what, whatever our development effort is, a substantial element of it has to be in improving governance, good governance, building strong institutions that can hold governments to account. The key to the new global goals is, I believe, goal, goal 16, which concentrates on the provision of this vital good governance because without it, nothing else will grow and thrive. So what else can we as donors do to promote the growth that will sustain and create jobs. Certainly, we can provide the um, investment, the development capital to provide the infrastructure, to make markets available, uh, to provide power. Or it might be on a microfinance level, just small pieces of capital uh, for small enterprises that will actually transform their productivity and their ability uh, to deliver and to create jobs. So that's one way in which we can do it. Equally, we can use our own investment arm, the CDC, to blaze a trail and show that by investing in these developing economies, there are significant profits to be made, leading the pack to follow. That's another way that we can deal uh, with these problems. I think that the way that the IGC uh, has been shaping the environment is a particularly strong suit. The way that you have, um, for example, in Ethiopia and in Tanzania, uh, encouraged and supported foreign firms, foreign enterprises, to enable local firms and enterprises to become part of the um, supply chain. That's a particularly uh, strong suit. Increasingly, the problem is located in the most fragile of states. And that is where we really have to raise our game uh, and solve this problem by creating jobs. And in that respect, again, IDC, I think you've done a tremendous uh, work by sticking uh, with Sierra Leone and Liberia throughout the Ebola crisis. So, I'm actually very proud of our commitment to IGC, uh, and I'm very glad to announce that it will continue until 2018. I think you've done tremendous work, but there is a huge amount of work still to be done, and I very much look forward to the output of these three days of effort on your behalf. Thank you. Well, now we begin the session which is titled um, 
industrial development, China and Africa. And indeed, it would be hard, I think, to have a better introduction than the minister's uh, comments for the very simple reason that if you were to take a poll of African economic managers, of ministers of finance, planning, um, across the continent, you would find that jobs are jobs one with them as well. Uh, and the reason for that is a very stark reality, that for the last 20 years, despite extraordinary growth, Africa has failed to create a vibrant number of well-paying jobs. Only one in five people today across the continent actually obtains wage labor when they enter the labor market. Four out of five are consigned either to agriculture or increasingly to services. But services, alas, are not high productivity jobs. The average output per worker in services across Africa is about twice that in agriculture. The average output per worker in industry in Africa is more than five times that in agriculture. So it's become very clear, and we've seen this in the work of the um, African Center for Economic Transformation, of the Economic Commission for Africa, of the African Union, uh, that jobs and industry have become associated in people's minds, and the idea of an industrial transformation has become an important one. So it's a very highly relevant topic, I think, and a topic which um, both speaks to a desire to learn from others, and China certainly is the success story of the age in terms of manufacturing, and an understanding, I think, of also what one can obtain from that model and adapt to the continent, because not everything that's worked in China certainly will work in Africa. Just by way of introduction, let me just give you a few dismal facts. After all, economics is the dismal science. Um, in 1975, the share of GDP in manufacturing in Africa across the continent uh, on average, was 10%. In 2015, the share of manufacturing in GDP across Africa was 10%. 40 years during which there had been no progress in terms of structural transformation. Africa's share of manufacturing GDP is less than half of that for all developing countries, including all the African countries that we've just been talking about. Per capita manufactured exports, about 10% of the developing country average. And the share of global manufacturing, frankly, today it's smaller than it was in 1980. It's about 2% today. It was about 3% in 1980. Now, part of this is structural transformation. Africa is a low-income part of the world. We would expect manufacturing and industry to play a smaller role than they do in middle-income and upper-income countries. But in fact, what we find when you do a Chenery-type cross-country regression is that only four of the 25 African countries for which we have data are actually positive outliers in the sample. The rest of them are all below the standard pattern relating income to the share of manufacturing and GDP. And what worries me a bit more, and John Sutton and I were, were speaking about this this morning, is that of the fastest growing economies, let me pick out Ethiopia, Ghana, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda, not to uh, denigrate anyone else's efforts, they're all negative outliers. So there clearly is a manufacturing and industrialization problem in Africa. And the question that we're here to discuss today is, can China provide some guidance in thinking about what different to do? We have two very distinguished panelists. Um, let me introduce each of them. Uh, but before I do that, let me just talk a little bit about how I see the session going. Uh, I do have here a set of rather draconian-looking instructions from the LSE which is a guide to chairing public meetings in the event of disorder. 
So if, if all of you uh, don't like the way I'm proposing to run the session, um, please indicate by raising your hands, but not by jumping up and heckling the chairman, please. Otherwise, I'd have to start to follow these instructions. Um, what I propose is that we have two short presentations, one from Chiang Tai, the other from John. Um, and we let them go through and do the presentations without raising questions. Then I have a couple of questions for each of the panelists, and I'd like to get a small conversation going between them, keeping conscious of the time so that we leave plenty of time for questions and answers from, from the audience. So we'll see how it goes, but um, please do give them at least a chance to get through their presentation before you begin creating disorder. Um, Sitting immediately to my left is, is Professor Chang Tai Si of the University of Chicago. Um, he has many, many distinguished achievements in his career, but let me begin by pointing out that he's actually a founding member of the steering group of the International Growth Center. He's been with us since we started back in 2008, and we've relied extensively on his good judgment and advice, particularly in the areas of microeconomics, which is his specialty, uh, in working as an organization. Beyond that, of course, he is a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research um, and a senior fellow at BREAD. Uh, I find, interestingly, that he attended Swarthmore College, one of the jewels of America's small liberal arts schools, um, and the happy home of a number of friends of mine on the faculty there over the years. With a PhD, I'm not quite so happy about being a Stanford person myself from the University of California at, at Berkeley. Um, but uh, Chang Tai is, is, has an extensive range. It would be impossible to give you the breadth of his CV. But one of the things that he is best known for, in fact, is an extremely astute observer of the Chinese economy. And that has become a major area of his research and writing over, over the years. In this building, John Sutton probably doesn't need much of an introduction. Um, he is the Sir John Hicks Professor of Economics here at the London School of Economics. Um, John, that's a pretty big title to live up to, actually. <laughs> uh, but has been recognized for, for many years as, as a creative theorist and thinker in, in uh, industrial organization. Uh, he's written a book for which um, I still have enormous admiration and which I've used in my own work called Competing in Capabilities, the Globalization Process, and is recognized really as one of the pioneers in this field of firm capabilities, about which we'll talk very extensively tomorrow during some of the sessions. So you're here with one of the founding fathers, if you will, of, of that school of thought. Um, I don't know whether in the context of Brexit it's politically correct to mention this or not, but he did serve as a member of the group of economic advisors to the president of the European Union. Um, but more British-centric, he's um, the pre has been the past president of the Royal Economic Society, and he's a fellow of the Econometric Society and the British Academy. So whether you have British credentials or European credentials, his credentials as an economic thinker and a policy analyst are impeccable. So we'll begin with Chiang Tai, who's going to tell us a little bit about China, and then we'll go to John, who's going to tell us a bit about China and Africa. Should I start? Yeah. All right. All right, great, thanks. Um, so I, there are two things I want to talk about. I, I want to talk about the institutional foundations for, for China's growth or, or for the, the, the rise of the manufacturing sector in China. The second thing I, I will also talk about is the slowdown in growth. So for those of you who are 
here from Africa, you know, you, there, I, I, my guess is that there are two things that you want to know about. What has China done? And, and what is China doing now such that my sales to China have been falling? Uh, um, so I, I, and what I will claim is that in order to understand the slowdown that we've seen in Chinese growth, you have to understand the foundations of what was behind the growth that took place um, in the first place. So the way I want to start is, that, is to just lay out what, what I'm going to call the puzzle of China. And the puzzle of China is the following, that, that on the one hand, there's tremendous economic growth that I don't even have to tell you about. It's something that you know from just looking in your pocket and going to the store. So I, I don't tell you the tremendous economic growth. The puzzle is that when you look at the quality of what we're going to call formal institutions, and I'll be more explicit about what these things are, uh, uh, China looks incredibly weak. Okay, so the first thing that I want to just just convince you of, right, to the extent that there's uh, is first is 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 this first point: the weakness of formal institutions in China. So I'll 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 just give you a, a few scattered uh, pieces of evidence. One way in which you can look at how well China does in terms of the formal institutions is to look at China's ranking in what are called these World Bank doing business indicators. So the way that you want to think about this is that this is essentially the modern version of the exercises that Hernando de Soto was doing in Peru in 1985. So this is essentially the brainchild of Andre Schleifer. Basically what it is is that it basically goes through a number of basic procedures that every business have, uh, that, that, that every business has to go through, and it just quantifies this. How many steps do you have to go through? How many taxes do you have to pay? How many licenses do you have to take? So I'll give you one indicator, okay? In terms, there are about 185 countries in which this exercise is conducted, and in terms of the overall ease of starting a business in China, Okay, it's 151 in the world out of 180 uh, out of 185. Okay, so just so that you know, so before you start to think that 100 and, uh, 151 in the world may not be that bad, that's actually one rank below the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, so so uh, uh, the Congo. So just so that we have the proper country in mind, this is the Congo of Mobutu. Okay, and. You know, and we're not having a, a session about about the lessons from the Congo for Ethiopia, uh, uh, or or maybe you are, but it's for a different uh, 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 reason. Let, let let me first, I'll just show some more pieces. So first, when you look at this, okay, there seems to be something that's fundamentally wrong, right? When you look around in your pocket, there's nothing from the Congo. Right? There, there, there's no, no, nothing that you have for the Congo. So how can it be the case that things are as dismal in China as they are in the Congo, but yet, you know, uh, yet, yet that's not consistent with what you see with your eyes, okay? So first I want to show you that there's something both fundamentally correct about what this data is measuring, and there's also, there's also something that is missing uh, about what, what, what's being captured. So first I just want to convince you that this, there's something fundamentally correct about this, okay? So I don't know how, how many of you can read Chinese. If you don't, you're just going to have to trust my, trans, you just have to trust my translation. So here is a, the front, this is the front page of a Chinese newspaper from, uh, from, uh, from uh, September 26th of 
of 2014. It's a Communist Party newspaper. All newspapers in China are Communist Party newspapers. And I want to focus your attention to the, the, the article on the very top, not to the guy that's being arrested. We'll come back to that in five uh, minutes. And the article is essentially talking about a, a city in China and talks about the number of steps and how difficult it is for a small business to expand in China, in, in, this, in this city in China. And it goes on, so the headline of the article says that in order to get to expand your business, you have to pay 95 taxes, that's the, that's the 95 there, and you have to get 192 official chops of approval. Those, so those are the signatures that, that, uh, the, uh, the, the signatures that you have to go through. And if you go and read the rest of the article, it talks about how there's now a new certificate that you have to get in order to, to expand your business. You have to get a certificate of stability from the local public security bureau. It's not what you think, right? It's not about the physical stability of your business. It's about the political stability of your business. So that's the new thing that is on that. that that's the new thing that's about. I'll, I'll just give you one more piece of evidence. Here's a cartoon that I found in a newspaper in Hainan Island, and the, the article is very similar. It's, it's about a developer talking about how difficult and what a royal pain it was in order to get the permits that he, that he needed in order to uh, develop and this was a cartoon that was uh, associated and the uh, the caption in the car the the cartoon was a long march for licenses okay so this is one view of, of China now what I want to so if this is the story for China if this really is a story for, for China, then either the way that we think about the world, you know, the things that matter in, in, in the world completely goes out the window, or there may be something else that is going on. So, so this is really the genesis of, of the project. So I'll, I'll begin by sketching out what the real system is in China. Okay? And the way that I want to do this is that I want to talk about what actually goes on in a specific city. So... So a couple years ago, me along with my, col uh, with my collaborators, we went to a small city in China. Small, it's a million and a half workers. So that's, you know, uh, larger than the city of Boston, but that's a small Chinese city, okay? We came to the city because there, were the, there was a person that we knew there who was in charge of the public schools, okay? The person that, the, the person that we had a personal connection with was and uh, was was the, his formal title was that he was a vice mayor of the education department. Okay, we got there in the morning, and we met up with the chief of staff. And his chief of staff told us that he was busy. He he, he was busy, but he would try to meet with us that day. So we started to chat with him about what he did. Okay, so the first thing that he did, so John will appreciate this. He handed us this flowchart. This is what we do. Okay, so this is the vice mayor's office in charge of schools. Okay, and I've translated this for you. So this, this is what the vice mayor for education does. So the flow chart is the first thing we do is that we actively look for quality prospects. The second thing we do is that we have an initial discussion to learn about the investor. Again, just think the vice mayor for education. Okay, then we conduct a feasibility analysis. We identify the land and other needed ser uh, services, and then it goes to approval of the vice mayor, and then we sign the agreement. Now, what is he talking about? Okay, Th this is this is the, the office is in charge of monitoring the teachers, may, uh, monitoring should making sure there's toilet paper in the schools, 
But when you look at what they are doing, okay, the top echelon of that particular part of, of, the, of the city government, they're doing none of that. What they're doing is this. Okay? What, 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 what they're doing with this. And then when you probe a little bit deeper, you find out that the combination of the vice mayor and the chief of staff, they're, they're, well, basically they're, they are trying to, they are in charge of 20 companies. So basically this looks like exactly the kind of thing that John has been working on in Ethiopia, except this is not called the investment agency. This is the vice mayor for education. Okay, and that's what they are doing. So they're in charge of 20 companies. So let, let me take a step back and just give you a broader structure, a, a picture of what, of what, of the structure of this government. Um, so this local government, the, the guy in the top is the party secretary. That's a, that's a secretary of the Communist Party. Okay, the number two guy is the mayor. So if you ever do any business in China, go, don't, don't make the mistakes of talking to the mayor. Go talk with the party uh, secretary, so the, 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 lots of my students make that mistake when they're doing business in China. The mayor is the number two guy, and the, the, and the party secretary is the number one guy. You, you can also see it in their license plates. The license plate of the party secretary is one, and the mayor is two. Uh, 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 two just so that in, in case you were con, uh, confused about the hierarchy. And then underneath these guys, there are nine vice mayors. Okay, there are nine, so there's a vice, nine mayors in charge of education, which is the guy that we knew. Vice mayor in charge of the population and, 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 uh, and health bureau. That's the part of the party that's responsible for implementing the one child policy. That probably has the largest staff. Vice mayor for finance in charge of collecting the taxes. So it's organized like a typical, you know, uh, like, a, a, like, like a typical local. But what is really unusual about what this local government is doing is that what all of these guys are doing is that, is that, is that the top uh, is that they're all focused, they all have their companies that they are in charge of. So, when, so in the days that we, we spent there, you know, we went and we just canvassed to just get a rough count. of. So our rough count is that each one of these vice mayors, they were in charge of about 20 to 25 companies. The in charge meant that these were all private companies. Okay? So these are not state-owned firms. So what they had to do, okay, is that they had to make sure that, that whatever these companies wanted, they would get. Uh, they would get. So these 95 taxes uh, and 195 permits that you have to get, you know, for you, you're my friend, it does not apply to, it, it does not apply to you. So just do a rough count of this. So nine vice mayors, 20 projects, that's 180 companies. We did not have access to the mayor or, or the, the, the party secretary, but the most important companies are handled by them. So we're talking about 250 companies, average employment of about 1,000. So we're talking about 300,000 jobs or so in a city of a million and a half people. So we're talking about something like 30% of the labor force are employed by firms, are employed in firms that get anything they want, that get, that get anything they want done. So. The way that you want to think about the Chinese system is that there are basically two systems. There's the formal system in which you follow the rules and it's like the Congo. There's a second system that is actually relatively transparent and the second system is better than Singapore. Okay? And the second system works through this channel. So I'll give you an example of what life is like in the second system. So, 
there's a phrase that people in China use. They call it Zhengzhou Speed. Okay, Zhengzhou is a city in China, and Zhengzhou Speed is referring to how quickly this local government operates, and it's in reference to how quickly they jump through the hoops when a Taiwanese company came to town. Okay, so the story of this is that it's about what、uh, so the iPhone six is made. In the city of Zhengzhou, in a plant of about three hundred thousand work, a plant of about three hundred thousand workers. The story behind this is that Foxconn first opened up a plant in the interior of China in two thousand seven, in Wuhan、uh, province. The governor of the province at the time was a guy called Mr. Guo. He moved in two thousand eight to、uh, to the province next door. Okay, and then. I don't exactly know what happened, but but the stories are that he immediately worked really hard to try to get Foxconn to set up shop in his in his new province. Okay, so when you look at the news accounts, in two years, in June twentieth of of two thousand and ten, okay,、um, the 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 chief executive of this Taiwanese company, uh, Taiwanese company, flew to flew to town with his entourage and his plane. He was welcomed at the airport by the governor and with all the important,、uh, with all the important、uh, people in the party. And, and I found a picture of them at the airport. So one of these guys is the Taiwanese boss. The other one is the communist boss. Okay. And for,、uh, I, I guess I can ask you to tell me、uh, which one is the communist boss and which one is the is, is the, the, the Taiwanese boss. But here's a picture of these two guys.、Uh, These two guys at the air, airport. When you read the official news reports, in June 29th of 2010, there was an agreement that was signed. After the agreement was signed, then the party, then the local party bureaucracy swung into act,、uh, swung into action. Permits don't even don't your permits. You don't even have to worry. worry, worry, worry you don't have to worry about it. Roads were built. A power plant was was built. The deal was that the local government was responsible for building. The hospital and the dorms for the workers. The company was responsible for building for was responsible for for was responsible for building the, the the factory. Orders came down through the bureaucracy through all the high schools and all the universities with quotas on the workers that that each university had to recruit for this new operation. And in August of two thousand and ten, two months, okay, in two months, okay. A plant employing two hundred thousand workers opened up shop, and makes the stuff you have in your pocket. Two months, okay. So that's what life is like on the on on the other side, right? So there's the Congo re, there's the Congo regime, and then there's the Zhengzhou there's the there's the there's the there's the, there's the Zhengzhou、uh, regime. So I'll summarize by just saying, what is this system? Okay, what is this? This the this this system that there are two ways in which you want to think about it. One is that you know it's a system of cronies, okay? It's a system of cronies. It's a system that that I think we all understand really well, okay? And what is a system of cronies? It's basically two things that you need. You need to have a system of weak formal institutions. That is, you you need a reason that somebody needs to be a crony. Because if you don't need the party boss, then there's no reason why why anybody has to be a crony. And I think something we also know well, but is not said that often, that when you have a system that in which formal institutions are weak, it's not the case that all companies suffer because of this. 
Most firms suffer, but there are some ways in which you can navigate a system. And you, what is it? These are the cronies. These are, these are people with some sort of deals or some sort of political connections, that, and they get help in navigating the system or get access to resources that everybody else has difficulty accessing. So we all understand the system well, and I think it's a dominant, the dominant system that we see in, uh, in most of the countries in the world. Okay? Normally, when we talk about this kind of system, we talk about how inefficient this system is. But I think it's worth just thinking a little bit harder on when does the system work really poorly and when might it work better. Okay? And the way that you want to think about it is that there are three characteristics that ex I think explain why the system has operated differently. Okay? For, most of, you know, for, for most of the time period. One is that it's not just a system of cronies, but it's a system of what I'm going to call free entry into being a crony. Okay? That you can buy your way into being a crony. That being a crony, uh, a crony is not just limited to your family and your friends and your cousin, to use the, the phrase, but if there was a system where if you have an idea, okay, it was actually relatively easy to find a path, to find to, to find a path to find somebody that really wants your project. What accounts for this? I would say that there are two things. One is that what is really unusual about the Chinese bureaucracy is that it's a Leninist party state. Okay? What that implies is that, is that it's a really, really low, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a state apparatus with immense capacity. With immense capacity to both, both for evil that uh, and also, but uh, so if you think about you know if you think about in your uh, countries, what would it take to force to implement a law such that everybody would be limited to one child? Okay, that takes an enormous amount of state. That takes an enormous amount of state. Uh, enormous amount of state capacity. What is changed in China since the early uh, early 1990s is that that same Leninist party state capacity has been focused primarily into serving businesses. Okay, so it's about the use of the Leninist party state uh, to, to, to serve. So when orders come down through the, through, through the system, you know, the, they're, they're, uh, uh, the, the orders, are ag, uh, orders are executed. The, the second thing is that it, it's, it's been a system until relatively recently in which it's, it was relatively easy to make these deals. Okay, it was a relatively open open system, and the question is why? You know, I would say that the, the traditional story in, in the Chinese political system is that this is something that comes out of this, that it was essentially the incentive system that was set up by the, the, by the Chinese political system. An alternative reason, which I think is closer to the truth, is that there was basically, you know, no restrictions on the kind of deals, no restrictions on, no restrictions on corruption. You control the judge, you control the media, you control the police force, um, so you can make any kind. You can make any kind of deals that you want with with reasonable certainty that nobody's ever going to challenge you. Okay. Two other things that I think are are going to be important. There was really relatively limited access to financial resources until two thousand nine. Um, that basically, when you want to help uh, your these companies, you could help in a, doing a, a bunch of things, but you didn't have money. Okay? And the, the third thing, which I think is sort of crucial, is that there, there are several thousand of these guys. 
So if there's a particular local government that is not functioning well, there was a guy in the next door that you can always, that it was a guy in the next door that you can always go, you can always go to. And, and that has also uh, created lots of, a, a lot of competitive dynamic into the system. You can try to protect your friends, but then the party boss next door with his businesses, they're trying to steal your rent. That is, they want the same, they, they want. So the way that you want to, maybe one way in which you want to think about the system is that there are several thousand of these powerful mafia bosses that basically operate like a private equity funds with the power of the Leninist party state, with the power of the, of the, of the, 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 the Leninist state be, uh, behind it. So I think this describes the system until roughly 2009, and two things have happened such that, uh, such that the outcome looks different. But before I say that, you, when, when you think about you know, what is it that makes the Chinese system operate differently, it's really a system that operates on a knife edge, that you need all these things to take place for, 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 for this uh, system to work. And if one of these things starts to change, then you can see how the system can start, can start to go off the, uh, off the rail. So the fact is that after 2009, growth slowed. Okay? What do I think has been behind this? The first thing, is what I'm going to call the long shadow of the Chinese fiscal stimulus. Okay? So people bandy around numbers of, of, of how large the Chinese fiscal, sti the Chinese fiscal uh, stimulus was. One thing that it's important to understand is that Chinese fiscal stimulus was not a fiscal stimulus. Okay? What it was was basically financial liberalization. That what the Chinese fiscal stimulus was that basically there were these informal rules that allow local governments to, to begin to borrow money, okay? And, and th thus, when they spend, then the, this, then, then. So, there, and then there are two new type, the two new institutions. One was that they were informally, they, they were not legally allowed to borrow, so what they did is that they created these off-balance these, these off sheet companies that could do the borrowing on their behalf. These, these are known as, as the local financing uh, vehicle. So what would happen is that, these companies would borrow money and then, and then use that money to fund public investment projects and also provide loans, but not to all firms, but to the firms that the local government wanted the loans provided to. The second thing was that they were allowed to create these, uh, these, uh, these what, what are called these uh, shadow, banking inst uh, shadow banking institutions that, you know, that exploded after 2009, such that by 2013, about 9% of GDP was being intermediated through these through these uh, shadow banks. What's the consequence of this? If you think back to these, you know, three, uh, to th think back to these three things, this limited access to financial resources, that starts to change. They now have access to financial resources. The consequence of that is that you still have the same incentive to help companies, to, to help these companies, but now you have this additional tool, and this additional tool what you see in the data is that you start to see a massive increase in the misallocation of capital. Okay, so you help, uh, so, and, and, and the reason this matters is because then this comes at a welfare loss to the, uh, to the firms that are not in, that are not in, the, the, that are not in the, the, the system. But I say that the most important thing that has changed in China is that since about 2013, there was a massive crackdown on corruption. Okay? Well, what would a crackdown on corruption do to the system? Because the way I describe the system is that 
you depend critically on the discretion of these guys to help you navigate the business environment. Okay? So the question is, what is the incentive for these guys to help you navigate the environment? What you see these guys doing, I'll just give you a picture. The, all these local government officials, they're basically working 24-7. They're working investment banking hours. They're up at 6 in the morning. They work until uh, 1, o'clock in, uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. And they work through, they work through, through the, 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 the weekend. You know, navigating 20 companies is hard work, uh, particularly in the system. And now... What you start to see with the crackdown on corruption is that this behavior starts to change. Okay? So now it, bec- it has become a lot harder to basically make these deals take place. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible. These big, so Foxconn is still doing fine. Okay? But it's the smaller guys that are having a much harder time navigating, uh, a much harder time um, uh, uh, um, um, much harder time uh, navigating the the the, uh, the 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 system. So, uh, I guess I've taken enough time. But then I then then the question is, you know, where uh, where does China go next, and what lessons do other countries uh, learn from what the Chinese have done? And I'm happy to talk more about that uh, later. Thank you, Chang Tai Chun. Okay, um, I'm going to start from a very different place, but you'll find that uh, we'll converge shortly. I'm going to start by uh, saying that it's about time we at IGC started to ask a certain question. IGC has been around for a while. When IGC was uh, first building up momentum, we had this great new fact. For 50 years, we'd been told Africa's going nowhere economically. All we heard was bad stories. And about five, six years ago, the world media caught up on what economists had been saying for a few years, which is, hey, look, Africa's got some of the highest growth rates in the world. It's been going on for 10 years. In particular, there's half a dozen countries in sub-Saharan Africa that have had unusually high sustained growth for a decade. Things are changing. Well, um, yeah. But uh, if you're an economist, you know, you're, you're trained to put a dampener on all kinds of enthusiasm. <laughs> and economists know that there is one big statistical regularity. Suppose you take any part of the world in any decade at all, and you measure the growth rates over the past 10 years, and you pick out the winners. Now you extrapolate for five years. What are you going to find? They're not growing fast anymore. That's the statistical regularity. It's called Statistics 101, Regression to the Mean. You have IID shocks. In other words, you get lucky some days, you get unlucky other days. Stuff happens. You pick out the guys that have been lucky for a while. Five years later, they're not going to be lucky anymore. Regression to the mean. 
So the big question five years ago was, is this a flash in the pan or is it something real? Now we had some qualified reasons for optimism. We could point out that when we looked at the underpinnings of this 10 years of fast growth, it didn't look like accidents. It didn't come from the places that people said it was coming from, like shocks to global raw materials prices. It was coming from dull, boring, ordinary, across-the-economy stuff, like the agricultural sector. It was coming from a doubling in the size of manufacturing industry over the decade. It was broad-based. And it wasn't coming from any particular kind of company. It was coming from a mix of small entrepreneurs, large companies expanding existing things, inflows of FDI. And when you find it broadly based and depending on a lot of stuff, then there may be more stability to it. Still, it's time to ask questions. I've been very involved in looking at five countries that five years ago appeared to many of us to be leading candidates for possible industrialization over the next generation. Some people would put six or seven countries on the list, but everybody would agree that these five countries have to be on the list of half a dozen plus countries. Now, given... All that I've said, we might expect that, yeah, there's something real here. But my sobering economic fact is worth rehearsing at this stage because now it's five years down the line. This is what they looked like five years ago. You can see that Ethiopia was shaky at the beginning but then started to grow faster than everyone else. You can also see that Ghana was fairly unstable towards the end of the period, but all were growing fast. So are we going to see these growth rates fall over the following five years, the past five years, or not? Well, that's what it looks like. Looks pretty good, in fact. Ethiopia is uh, more volatile over the last few years, but still the highest. Uh, Some worries about Ghana over the past three years, but by and large, It looks like something real. So let's dig deeper. What have we got in Ethiopia? Well, we've got a pretty good story. And it echoes what Chiang Tai says. The really important message from what Chiang Tai is saying is not... Do you have good democratic institutions and is this all transparent or is it sort of a shadow system in which you can get things done? The overarching thing is focus. The government really wanted to make things happen economically. And when I look at the seven or eight countries that went from being non-industrial economies to being highly industrialized over the past 40 years... That's the common thread. Focus by the government. And Ethiopia has that in spades. Uh, This targeted commitment by government to do all the necessary things to grow the economy. And I think that is the core of why it's doing so well. Ghana. Here we have some worries. 
a few years ago, the government decided to double public sector salaries. That really is a big macro challenge, and it's a heavy burden for an economy to bear. In Mozambique, every, all the intentions are good. The government really wants to focus, but the absolute size of the teams of people at the top of government and civil service, the absolute number of people who are there to get things done is very lacking. And so it's hard to get things done, but sometimes, as in the Mosul 1 project, uh, Mozambique can really surprise you and do things brilliantly. Tanzania, um, I'm very heavily involved there at the moment, and uh, I am concerned, as many people are concerned, about the delicate balance that is being struck between assisting businesses and worrying about their non-payment of taxation and compliance with regulations. Politically, things are very much in the melting pot at the moment, and it'll take another 12 months before we really know what that balance or climate is going to be like. So it's a wait-and-see situation right now. Um, in Zambia, the government certainly wants to promote growth and is trying hard, but there are a lot of disappointments. Uh, the focus in terms of trying to develop the copper industry into a downstream industry, it's been going on for 20, 30 years now, and less has been achieved than one might hope for. So when you dig deeper, it's a, it's a mixed picture. But what is common to all these countries is the centrality of FDI. In China, you can do a lot of it at home. It's a big country. In a small country, you can't reinvent the wheel. You've got to bring in the capabilities. The whole process of economic growth depends crucially on FDI. Of the seven or eight countries that really move forward to become advanced industrial economies over the past generation, FDI has been at the center of the story. And active involvement by government in bringing in foreign companies and integrating it into the economy is the centerpiece of industrialization. Many of these countries are deeply committed to this. Tanzania, for example, has set itself the goal of becoming an industrial economy by 2020. I mean, that's an extraordinarily ambitious goal. But it speaks volumes for the ambitions of these governments. And bringing in FDI and taking care of these companies and removing unnecessary and inappropriate obstacles to the creation of jobs is the centerpiece of policy. So... FDI has many roles. The key thing that FDI does is it does operate on two margins at once. If you think of the industrial sector as a rectangle, and you think of pushing out the side of the rectangle as being expanding the number of jobs in your existing industries, and then you think of pushing up the top of the rectangle as being adding new industries, new activities... The great thing about FDI is it does both of those things, and both are equally important. Governments are constantly focused on the first because it's fast results, lots of jobs created in basic industries. But real industrialization depends on a balanced approach on both fronts because you need a broader industrial base than these countries have. In fact, if you look at basic industries... Beer, cement, 
food and drink generally, basic engineering products up to the level of heavy-duty plastic products, uh, rebar, that kind of thing, steel from scrap. These countries actually have a good basic industrial structure. They have the full gamut of products over those. What they really need is to move into middle manufacturing. And that is a quality challenge. That is what China really did between around 1980 and 20 years later. They hugely developed quality standards in middle manufacturing. And that is what FDI carries. And bringing in those middle manufacturing FDI companies is the key to success. Now, I want to talk a little about China as an obvious way of linking up with what Chiang Tai said. China in Africa is an interesting topic, full of fallacies. I was intrigued when I started uh, looking at the, this set of economies five, six years ago uh, to discover the widespread belief that uh, it was somehow the Chinese state that was behind China coming into Africa and the notion that all they're doing is looking for raw materials. So I went looking with uh, my Chinese colleague about uh, firms in Zambia and I found that these were completely false. Um, we could find only 17 Chinese companies of any size operating in Zambia and they were spread widely across the economy and the commercial attaché at the local Chinese embassy only knew eight of them. Uh, so this, these were operating below the radar of the state. The uh, interesting thing for me about China in Africa is the new opportunity what is about to happen in the next five years. Because that's a really interesting new episode. And the country that has really latched onto this is Ethiopia. The big news from China is that it's too expensive to operate there. Ten years ago, they were offshoring textiles and clothing, looking for low-wage regions, and they were going to places like Vietnam. Now they're beginning to explore sub-Saharan Africa. Some sub-Saharan African countries are more aware of the opportunities than others, but there will be opportunities. And it's worth doing a reality check. This is speculation. This is guessing. But it's useful to know the numbers in order to know whether we're talking about something big and serious or whether we're talking about something trivial. So here's a way of doing it. There are three point, well, the amount of um, people employed in China in high-wage areas of China, just pick out the provinces where the wage is higher than the wage in Zambia, 1.38 million people. Pick out places where the wage is higher than the wage in Ethiopia, 3.76 million people employed. So as a thought experiment, suppose 20% of these high-wage region jobs got offshore. And suppose Ethiopia captured one-tenth of those. That would constitute more jobs than all the jobs in Ethiopian manufacturing today. So the numbers are big. The question is, how do you manage the process? 
Ethiopia is trying to manage this process by getting around the main barriers. The extraordinary thing, when you start working with investment agencies and you start working in detail with companies uh, and asking them what the difficulties are, the amazing thing is that everywhere you hear the same refrain. There are three big issues, power, land, and logistics. Difficulties with getting power will be discussed elsewhere. It's a big IGC topic, and I'm not going to steal the thunder of my colleagues. Uh, I let them talk about that. Land is a ubiquitous issue uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa, getting titles to land, companies coming in, being unable to find a place to operate. And logistics, just getting your stuff across the border, uh, dealing with customs, is the other thing. These are the three pillars of failure. And the question is, how are you going to deal with these? Now, what are the key agencies? What levers does government have? Well, the government can do an awful lot through the investment agency and the local content unit. These are the two branches of government charged with creating jobs on the back of FDI trying to remove unnecessary obstacles and help companies function normally, letting them create jobs. That's the job of the investment agency. The local content unit is charged with getting local companies into the supply chain of the multinationals. It's relevant in oil and gas, natural resources. And getting, that, getting these two organs of government to function is not a big deal. We know the recipes. You know, it's no secret how you get them to work well. But actually doing the job requires leadership within the country and uh, it's a task that needs to be done. Um, in Ethiopia, meeting these challenges, um, I've been working with the investment agency there for the past two, three years and it's really, it, it really is a, an excellent agency now. Uh, they're functioning really well. Um, the Ethiopians have also been working on reforming the custom system. That's a huge operation, uh, IFC-led, funded by DFID, five-year program, a huge job. Um, the kind of job that um, is daunting, uh, on Friday, and this is the only advertisement in this talk, uh, Rocco Machiavelli and I are going to be talking about reforming agencies doing particular jobs because uh, we have a predilection for just jumping in there and implementing something, you know, finding a job to do and doing it. Uh, so Rocco and I will be talking about this on Friday morning and uh, Rocco will tell you how uh, instead of reforming customs, what you do is you identify what little module of it is really crucial to getting results? And you fix that module. In other words, you turn it into a doable job. And he's been doing this brilliantly in Myanmar. So I let him talk for himself on Friday. Ethiopia also has been tackling the power problem. Uh, they're lucky. They have big hydroelectric schemes coming in on board, which are going to make them a net exporter of electricity in a few years. But... The other way in which they've been thinking about it is developing industrial parks, which is pretty much all the government wants to talk about these days in Ethiopia. Uh, they have a great virtue of learning from their mistakes, and uh, they reckon that they haven't done very well on industrial parks in the past, and they've learned how to avoid the mistakes they've made, 
and the new generation of industrial parks beautifully circumvent the customs logistics problem and the land problem, two of the three big barriers. And uh, so that's really their focus right now. In Tanzania, uh, developing the local content agenda has been something that's been very much on my mind over the past year. And now we have uh, exactly the right institutional structure in place. It's just a matter of starting to actually do some work. So uh, that is an area of focus that's going to be very important in Tanzania over the next five years. TIC, the uh, Tanzania Investment uh, Center, uh, is now mimicking what we've done in Ethiopia in putting best practice uh, into place, but that's another story for another day. The message that I want to give you is that these countries are focused on the right things. They are actively trying to create the right environment to remove unnecessary and inappropriate obstacles that stop firms from creating jobs. Some of these countries in this group may defy the pessimists and provide a model for the continent over the next decade, uh, but it all depends on very specific government policies. Policies really matter here. You know, um, I'm actually quite skeptical about most government policies most of the time, uh, but sometimes policy really does matter, and small fixes, getting certain key things right, can matter hugely. So I think that this is really a crucial decade ahead for sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, I think that in some places at least, the chances look good. Well, two fascinating presentations. Um, and I'm terribly tempted to steal all of your time by asking questions, but I'll confine myself to, to only asking one of each of the panelists, and if we have a little lull, maybe I'll come back in with a, with a second one. Um, Changtai, it's interesting because, you know, much of the new literature on industrial policy talks about this question of public-private interaction, close communication between the public and private sectors, and makes the point that both in the design of policy and in the, um, and in the feedback that you need to really see whether things are working or not, you have to have a relatively close relationship with, with private entrepreneurs. And, of course, then we have an enormous literature out there, uh, which you sort of tapped into when you talked about crony capitalism, which is the worry that much of this will be captured by the private sector. Indeed, much of the argument in the literature is how do you increase communication while avoiding capture? And I was struck as you were talking about the crony capitalist model in China that one way to characterize it might be contestable cronyism. You have competition on the part of large firms who have the ability to move from one provincial or city location to another if they don't feel that they're getting the services that they require. At the same time, at least up until the reforms, you had local and provincial officials being judged in part on their performance. How well was the province doing? How well were they delivering these services? So the element of competition there becomes very important, I think, or at least contestability. And the question I guess I would have is you said, well, yeah, but this describes a system that's very common around the world. If we sort of step back and we look at Africa and we look at some of the issues that John has raised, are there some lessons from China that African governments could try to begin to put into place to have a contestable system of this sort? 
I, 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 um, I would preface my remarks saying that I don't know Africa well enough uh, to give a, a, a fully informed answer to the question. Um, I, I guess I would say the following. Okay, I, 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 would, uh, I would say the following that maybe one way in which you want to think about it is that I think a lot of our focus is in trying to think about I'll I'll uh, is I'll call it the I'll give it a label. Okay, I'll I'll say is in trying to think about what the Kennedy what the Kennedy School model would be to try to get people like John in think about what the best practices try to build and and then to and then and and then hope and then to and then to try to build a, and try, try to build a best build the best institution in in that way and one way in which you might want to think about that model is that I'll call it the recruitment policy of the Catholic Church, right? If you think about what the system is, the system is come and join me in the church, okay? I'll guarantee you that you're never going to have money for the rest of your life, right? And you're never going to have, and and you are never going to have another woman, uh, um, but join me, uh, 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 join me, and and why might that make sense? Okay, because it's about the appeal to the mission, uh, to the uh, to, to the mission you want to serve, and that's sort of I'll I'll just make fun of John. Right? That's sort of you know John is there because he's like the priest in the church. <laughs> he wants to serve and he's curious. <laughs> he's curious. Now that works. If there are lots of people like John, but not, but you need that kind of people, that kind of person up and down the view, up and down the bureaucracy for this to, for this, for this, for this system to work. The alternative extreme, the the alternative would be, I'll call it the Goldman Sachs model, the Goldman Sachs model that. I don't care if you're a greedy bastard. I I, I don't care if you're greedy. What I'm going to assume that you're a greedy, selfish bastard. I'm going to assume that you're greedy, and I'm going to put in place a set of incentives such that I can harness the, your greediness and your bastardness. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and your now, most... And, and so the Chinese system up until 2000, uh, roughly until 2013, was really the Goldman Sachs model. I mean, like, I mean, the, what I would, the way that I would rephrase what John said is that it's not about close communication. It's one and the same guy. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, so another way to think about it is that public and, and private, that distinction doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in China. That it's really, the way that these guys are operating, it's, it, it is basically their company. Okay, and they, 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 it's, it's, so it's their money at stake. It's their, it's, um, I, I understand that there's a narrative in China that it's about the incentives put in place, put, put in place by the political uh, system. For the guys that are that at the level that I 
um, looking at. The, for these guys, the chances of them moving up in in the party is basically zero. I mean, it's not zero. So these guys are self-aware enough that they know know, the chances of them being joining the Politburo Standing Committee is basically, there's no, so they think if, uh, so, but here's a chance for them to make $20 million, uh, for uh, $20 million for, for, uh, uh, and $20 million doesn't sound that bad. So. And I guess the the question is how do we uh, now? There are some there are cases where you don't want the Goldman Sachs type of model because I I, I mean I, I I can say more that what you start to see in 2011 to 2012 is that this system starts to fall apart. So another way to think about it is why was there this big, was there this big political campaign? Uh, on, on corruption, uh, uh, this, the, uh, anti-corruption. But I, I would also point, uh, I, I, I'd say that we don't think enough about how to meld these two things, that, um, that the model of the Catholic Church was sort of the implicit model that we have, that these guys should be, uh, should be selfless civil servants and they should be happy being paid not, they should be paying uh, not, uh, not that much, they should do this, uh, for for the love of the country, the love of the country, that almost never works either. Okay, and then what we're left with is just this frustration when we find out that these that these guys that we want them to be priests, they're not priests. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> um. Um, so I, I, would, I mean, I, I can go into some more examples of things, but I, I think that we just have to be more creative in trying to think about different models of, of you know, how do we get an investment agency to work, uh, an, an investment agency to uh, to work? How do we compensate the, these people? How do we attract the best? Uh, uh, people do uh, to these investment agencies, and and also we have got we got to think about if one of these investment agencies, despite your best intention, turns out to be a turns out to be a failure. Um, you know, where is uh, uh, where is the equivalent of Apple if my BlackBerry is failing? Uh, and that I you know uh, that I think that we that there needs to be some. All, there, need, there needs to be some alternatives. Uh, so if John goes, that agency starts to fail, then that's it uh, for, for, for the country because there's no other path for them to follow. Uh, I'll tell you the answer to that on Friday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, Dad. Um, I can switch gears a little bit with, with John because one of the things I think, you can correct me, John, if I'm wrong, that you kind of picked out of the five enterprise maps that have now been done uh, is this problem of kind of capable middle-sized firms, firms 50 to 70 employees with the capacity to really produce products on quality specs and, and to high productivity. Um, and quite clearly, as we start to hear stories of Chinese investment and so forth, um, some of the stories are rather happy stories and some of the stories are really rather sad stories about the lack of engagement by Chinese firms with the domestic economy. If you were, as part of the priesthood, trying to give the Kennedy School answer to <laughs> I don't know why, how do I get the Chinese, in a sense, more engaged in this effort to help develop 
better middle-sized firms. Are there some things mm -hmm. that there are policy tools for governments that they could use? I think this is the question I'm asked more often than any other question. Um, I remember being asked the question when I was sitting as a, the tame economist on the Irish government's review of their industrial policy after 20 years of magical success. This was a decade ago. And uh, I would get emails from officials. And uh, in the end, one of these emails uh, said, yes, but Professor Sutton, what we really want you to tell us is how can we and it broke into capital letters at this point, grow mid-sized Irish companies to scale. Um, I, I, I actually don't answer emails if they use capital letters. Um, I, I've been asked this uh, question everywhere, and the answer is nobody knows the answer. It's notoriously difficult. Building up your own local mid-sized companies and getting them to get bigger and employ more people, governments haven't got a good handle on this. They haven't got a way to make it happen. Uh, you can only act indirectly. Uh, getting Irish mid-sized companies into the supply chain of the foreign multinationals that came to dominate the country from the 1970s has been an extremely slow process, uh, distressingly slow from the point of view of the Irish government. Uh, but getting the foreign companies themselves to expand has been much easier. Half the jobs created have been expansion projects by foreign companies already operating in Ireland. Um, but there are ways in which you can help things. That's why local content units are so important. In Tanzania, the big opportunity and the big challenge at the moment is the oil and gas multinationals are coming in. How can you get them to use local subcontractors instead of foreign ones? And the answer is... It's hard. You've got to do the job. It's no use having laws. Countries keep imagining all we need is a local content requirement of 70%. Only if you're a country as big as India or China can that work. For a small country like Finland, uh, you know, they'd never had, have had Nokia if they'd done stuff like that. Uh, so you have to have active engagement between the government, the multinationals, who actually are very willing to come into any realistic dialogue on this. You have to have a proper understanding of the limitations of your own companies, the kind of training they'll need in order to bring them up to speed, to qualify as approved vendors and get into those supply chains. It's active involvement. And there's a recipe, there's a way of doing it, but you actually have to do the job. You can't just pass a law. So, um, yeah, this is a notoriously hard problem. Great, thanks. Well, I think we should open it up now to questions. Let me say we could take three at a time so that John and, and Chiang Tai can, can handle it, and then we'll try to get at least two rounds in, but I knew though they're rather strict about the hours for the, the lecture theater, so we'll have to close it on time. So let's start down here. Hello, my name is Jim. Uh, I'm, I'm a student in LRC, and thank you very, very much for giving us uh, such a stimulating speech. And uh, I would like to raise two questions towards uh, 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 Professor Chang Tan. Uh, you mentioned coney capitalism, and uh, this remind me the fact that in 1993, um, there's an American journalist Nick called Nicholas Christoph. He used a very interesting terminology to describe the economic system of Chinese economy called the market Leninism. And, uh, and according to him, this terminology refers to the fact that on the one hand, the state could use this 
a, a very strong administrative power to regulate the economy, such as con, uh, such such as until now, the, all the land in China stayed owned, and the most of the key industry in China are still dominated by the state sectors. But on the other, but uh, but on the other hand, the dramatic growth of Chinese economy and the driving and the driving forces of Chinese economy are, st are still actually f are, are, are actually from the private sectors. So my question is, to what extent that? Recent economic reforms initiated by Chinese government, including the relaxation of of the control over the regulation of the registration of new starting up business, and the and the and the initiation of the, of the supply side policy, could transform such a like a corny capitalist, as you said, or market-dependent economy to a like Western style, like liberal market economy based on rule of law. I mean. Over here. Hello. Uh, my name is Nipuni Pereira. I'm a master's student from King's College. Uh, my uh, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, for both speeches. Really uh, enlightening. Uh, my question is: um, I was always been uh, fascinated about how, through uh, crony capitalism, etc., how China managed to kind of exert influence in the emerging markets of the country as well as in the um, developed world. Uh, we see a great influence of um, Chinese investment, Chinese presence in Asia. Africa and now Latin America. And um, that's something I've always been fascinated about um, compared to the Indian presence, for example. Um, so if you can kind of shed some light onto it, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Okay, and then uh, let's go way up to the, the top, to the gentleman in the gray jacket there. Hi, my name is Lisa Nandli. I'm a risk and compliance professional. My question is, do you have any advice for countries with little or no manufacturing capacities on how they could uh, increase their uh, manufacturing, how they could industrialize? For example, some countries in Africa with little or no FD, uh, G, uh, GDP from manufacturing, how they could uh, increase their industrialization, how, the best way they can industrialize. Okay, let me uh, actually just stop there for these three because I think probably start with John on that first, uh, third question, actually, but then any of the others you want to respond to as well. Can I just, can I just add a time to that question? No. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, let him. Let yeah, okay. Thank you. It's just very much building on that. Because I thought, absolutely, the question is how does the African, how do, how do the African economies develop? Jonathan Glennie, by the way, Save the Children, uh, Director of Policy in, and previously of Overseas Development Institute, very much about how do the African economies develop the manufacturing sector. But the question I, I, I was hoping, and it was brilliant presentations, thank you, that we might hear was what lessons are there from the Chinese success for African economies, not just what lessons are there in general from our economic analysis of history in the world, but what lessons are there from the Chinese success? And that seems to me to be a particularly difficult question, given especially the first lecture we heard about the very surprising way in which the Chinese managed to develop their, their manufacturing base. And, and is, are there any lessons that you, that you would literally say, look, the Chinese did this and therefore Africa can learn that? I think the answer is that you're starting from a very different place in that um, the scenario is very different if you're beginning from a country with almost zero manufacturing 
as against a country that has a good basic uh, industrial structure and needs to broaden and extend it. Uh, the countries that I've been highlighting here are countries that already have a good basic industrial structure in place. So you're talking about a different challenge, which is how do you begin to get the first industries going? And the good way of doing this is to uh, encourage through creating a good business environment the emergence of domestic companies that are very close to the agricultural sector in terms of processing of agricultural products. In other words, you start with the food and drink sector. It's much harder these days to do the classic thing and start with clothing and textiles, as has been a model in many countries 50 years ago. Uh, but I would say that's the right answer. I think there is also a bad answer to the question, which is that you bring in some foreign company and you give them tariff barrier protection and they have a local monopoly in the production of something. Uh, that is how to do FDI the bad way, but the world has learned to avoid that mistake. That was a very common mistake 30 years ago. Uh, but I can't be more helpful than that, I'm afraid. Um let me just say a few things. One, I just in terms of what lessons to learn, I I would say there's just one general lesson, and I don't think you you can say anything more specific than this general thing I'm going to say without knowing the details of a of a part of a part of a part of a particular country that there. I mean, in some sense, it's a difficult balancing task. You want to do two things at the same time. You want to think about where you want to get to, and you want to think about where you are now. Okay? So uh, where you are now. And then it's always a little bit of the both. So I'll just give you an uh, analogy. Suppose I, really, I, suppose I really want to play good, good soccer. Okay? I love, so one model would, would be that... Okay, I look at the, I, I go around, I do my work, I talk to John, and I figure out who's the best soccer player in the world, and I figure that out, and I watch him play, and I try to copy him. So think about what would happen if I were to, uh, were, were to do that. I say, well, there's this, little, there's this little Argentinian guy that plays in Barcelona, I just watch, uh, I just watch his videos, and I copy him, then I'm done, right? But... But then you, 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 and most of us are going to quickly realize that you can't do that, right? Because what he can do, you can't do. Uh, that, that's not within your, that's not within your, but there are going to be some things that he does that you can try to emulate. Uh, you, you, you can try to copy. So, so, and you want to try to do that, but then you've got to think about what is it that I do? Well, what is it that I, I can do? So I, there are certain things that he, that he can do, but maybe what I'm good, being good at, I, I'm, I'm good is that I can be a solid defensive team. So maybe, you know, the little bit of know about English soccer, that I cannot play like the Spanish team, but I can play like Chelsea. Right? I, can play, I, I, I can just play boring a boring defensive, uh, 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 boring defensive, uh, uh, boring, uh, de boring, de boring defensive soccer. I'm not going to lose that often. I'm not going to lose that often. And one out of every five times, I can beat the, the other guy. But given what I'm capable of doing, that is the best thing. That's 
the best thing that I that that's the the best thing that I that's a, the best thing that I that I can do, and then to go to the story of countries. When I look at what individual countries have done, the ones that have been successful. When you look at say what the Koreans have done, so John knows that John knows uh, knows a lot about this because he was the author of of this re- re- report. What did they do about these giant Korean conglomerates? Right, they basically strengthened them instead of uh, it, 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 instead. So, but it's not the typical thing that that we that that we, that we, that we would prescribe as being the first best thing. Uh, but but they did it under certain conditions. So they uh, so I will let John speak about what uh, about what the, the the work that that he did. The Chinese uh, 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 system to and this maybe segues into the first question that was asked. You know, there was this period in China, I, I think of it as the 1980s in China, where they were basically going down a particular path, which was liberalizing, making formal, in, uh, making formal, ins, making formal institutions better. But then something happened in June of 1989, right? And then that, and, and, and the ghost of June of 1989 is still, it is still the central ghost in, in China, and everything changed. Dramatically after June of 1989, and then and then the the search since then has been how do, how do we create a system that accomplishes two goals, which is both strengthens the control of the party and number two makes uh, makes the party rich, and and for a while they sort of ha- ha- had it uh, figured out, and then going another route. Uh, uh, is not consistent with you know what they thought the underlying capabilities were. So it's this, you know, it's this tension. I, I, I would say, uh, uh, and the Chinese case I think illustrates it well. This tension between what y- what what your underlying capabilities are and where you think you want to go, and then you've got to, you know, that is, you can't just be limited to where you are. But you can't just blindly copy uh, what is done uh, elsewhere. Uh. Yeah, let me just echo that. I, I'm sure you all know the Irish story about the woman who wanted to go to Kilkenny, so she asked this man for directions, and he said, ah, yeah, but you shouldn't start from here. <laughs> um, the thing is, you've got to work with what you've got. Different countries that have done well in industrialization have done it in very different ways because they had different starting points. Your initial conditions are crucial and you use the institutions that you've got and you don't try to just mimic somebody else. You've got to go in the way that reflects your preconditions. Uh, that's a universal truth. Um, finally, i um, You know, you reminded me of my father because my father worked in local government in Ireland back in the 1960s when Ireland was first trying to pull in all those foreign companies. And uh, Ireland and China, you know, I guess they don't have that much in common, you know, a factor of difference in population of 1,000. Institutions in Ireland were standard, traditional, transparent, uh, everything absolutely kosher, Um, but there was one commonality, focus. The Irish government decided almost overnight after 30 years of complete economic failure in a closed economy to open up the economy and get in FDI, and the focus was on, their slogan was jobs, 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 
And uh, they were completely single-minded. And I remember my father's experience was that the county manager, he, he was in county council in Tipperary, and the county manager for Tipperary, his jobs used to be uh, roads, bridges, you know, sewage systems. And suddenly it was, how many jobs have you created in Tipperary last year? And that change of focus, that was when things changed in Ireland. And that was just a different kind of switch of focus against a very different institutional environment. Um, and you know what, uh, you know, I, I don't like to harp on about it, but the reason I enjoy working in Ethiopia so much these days is that that's what I see. Well, I think, unfortunately, we have to draw this to an end. Um, as John was speaking, I was reflecting, and Chang Tai as well, that um, one of the notes I made to myself when I came into the room this evening was the question of, can China save African industry? And I think the answer that we've heard is no. Africa has to save African yes. industry. Um, and on that note, I wish you all a good evening. Let's give our panelists another round.